Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today we're having a very special discussion on the elections in Lebanon. With that in mind, I have two guests with me today, and I'm really, really delighted to welcome two of our wonderful Sepad fellows. First up, we have Ibrahim Halawi. Ibrahim is a teaching fellow in international relations at Royal Holloway, the University of London. His research focuses on the theorizing of the concept of counter-revolution, with a particular focus on the Middle East. He's just got back from Lebanon, where he was there during the elections. Second, we have Larissa Abu Hab. Larissa is a PhD student at Exeter University. She looks at um, the the ways in which ethnic identities are, are mobilized, contested, transcended in the context of Lebanon and in Bosnia. So I'm really, really delighted to have Ibrahim and Larissa here today. Thank you so much for joining us, both of you. The pleasure is mine. So where to begin with this, this election? I think probably we need to look a little bit at the context in which these elections were taking place. So I'll throw to you first, Ibrahim. These, these elections were obviously hugely important and there's a lot that's been written on them, but tell us a little bit about the context in which they took place, please. What is the, what is the, the Lebanese context like right now when, when the Lebanese were taken to the polls? Yeah, well, Lebanon has been facing one of the deepest fiscal economic crises in modern history, um, the largest destruction of wealth per capita in modern history per the World Bank. So in that sense, the elections were being um, anticipated, although many people thought that, including myself, that given how deep this crisis is, it is very unlikely that the elections will take place on time. Um, the government at the time, prior to the elections, was still unable to enact any reforms. Uh, there were sporadic meetings with IMF and other consultants um, to, to, to build or design a reform plan. But every time um, things were coming to a clash between different actors within the system, um, the, um, the board of directors, the director of banks, the central bank, political actors. So in a sense, on the eve of the election, the, the Lebanese society was experiencing the the structural inabilities of the ruling class to manage and overcome uh, and mitigate um, this deep financial and economic crisis. So with that in mind, um, a lot of these central political parties, they prepared for the elections at a very short notice um, with the kind of alliances that were not very consistent, but which is usual for the Lebanese, um, sectarian political parties, but in one thing in mind, which is the question of Hezbollah um, and how to contain basically um, the majority that Hezbollah has had for a while since the 2018 election. Great, thank you so much. Larissa, is there anything that you want to add to that contextual background? I would like just to add that it was interesting to me as well how the opposition groups were mobilizing. We didn't see any consistent alliances in that sense. And up until the last minute, opposition groups were uh, convening meetings. They were trying to unify the list in several districts. In many districts, they succeeded in doing so. 
But in other districts, it was, it was interesting also before and during the elections as well, that they were competing against each other. So um, it's true that the traditional political parties, they maintain their, tra their traditional alliances with a few amendments, I would say. Yet it was, it was interesting to delve deeper into how the opposition groups were managing maybe the first elections uh, with their size being tremendous compared to the elections of 2018. Because after the 2019 uprising, especially youth, the Lebanese youth, were more into uh, supporting new parties, cross-sectarian parties, with new programs that are focusing essentially on the socioeconomic crisis. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to hear as well. Thank you. I think we should at this point just quickly map out the political landscape then prior to the election. You've both mentioned opposition parties and you both mentioned the sort of the the competition and contestation between those different parties. So can 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 you perhaps Larissa just sketch out what does that political landscape look like? Who were the the main players when it came to the elections? Who were the main parties? Okay, uh so just for the sake of clarification, I mean, I'm going to use the terms that everyone knows. In terms of the March 14 block, or what used to be the March 14 block, we had the Lebanese forces from the Christian community, the PSP, uh, head by Walid Jumblat in the Druze community. Uh, the future movement, as we all know, Saad al-Harira decided to boycott the election. Uh, but it is still, I would say, a main player in the country. From the March 8 block, Definitely Hezbollah and Amal from the Shia community, the SPM, uh, and Marada to a certain extent. Now, from the new emerging parties or groups after the 2019 uprising, there is MMFD, Lihaqi, uh, Takadom. Also, we need to mention that there are many independent, or they call themselves, they label themselves independent figures. Uh, also, I forgot to, to mention Kata'ib, definitely. But from these independent figures, one could divide them into two categories. The traditional political figures, such as Namat Frem, Michel Mawad, etc. And the new ones, such as Pola Ya'ubian and Tahalofi Watani. So even... Um, we know the traditional political parties, but it was a bit difficult and a bit hard to uh, define the new groups emanating from the opposition after 2019 uprising, because we had so much groups, but the main one with the political weight, they were rare, like their number was really limited, if I might say so. Thanks, Larissa. Ibrahim, this, this emergence of, of new political parties and, and perhaps even movements post-2019 was, was hugely important at this time um, and offered a, a degree of a political alternative to the, the, the two blocks that had frozen um, the, the, the Lebanese political scene. So can you tell us a little bit about these these movements that emerged then, please? What is it about 2019 that that created a new new space for politics in Lebanon? And, and what does that space look like? Yeah, I think what came out of the uprising in 2019 is not one homogenous movement, nor a bunch of homogenous movements. I think people who participated in this nationwide mobilization first had different reasons to participate 
And second, they imagine the alternative to be very different. And in that sense, this is very organically manifested in the kind of politics that came out of the uprising. For instance, we see the emergence of merit-based personalities, um, people like uh, Nejat, um, that made it to the parliament, its new face, a very, I mean, successful academic, uh, technocratic, I may say, and, and people like Waddaf Sadiq, who present themselves first as knowledgeable people that are able and willing to fix what is otherwise mismanaged by incompetent traditional elites. So these people spoke to a specific audience that were not really after political organization. This is not about organizing some kind of political party, but instead trying to capitalize on the disillusionment and disappointment of a huge portion of society with the way in which the sectarian political elite have managed the economy. So this is one version of opposition that indeed was able to capitalize on the election moment, and many of them made it to the parliament rather efficiently without any meaningful movement behind them. On the other hand, you have the other extreme, which is a political organization like Motinu Motinatidawla, citizens in the state, or Larissa immediately went for the abbreviation for an efficient way of <laughs> saying it, <laughs> MMFD. Um, this is a political movement, really, that not only explicitly disagreed with this kind of opposition, that is the opposition of meritocracy, but instead saw that the, 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 really the, the problem and the reason why people mobilize is not because of incompetence, as much as it is about the failure of the very system in allocating and managing resources. So the, the financial collapse from this perspective is not the result of incompetence or lack of merit, which is a symptom, but instead it is the very nature of the state that emerged after the, uh, after the civil war. So, of course, between these two extremes, we have a lot of smaller groups that emerge that try to capitalize on opportunities. Many of these groups eventually, at the moment of the election, either merged formally or informally into common lists or common alliances, or diluted and basically dissolved, and some of the personalities within these protest groups tried to capitalize on um, the elections by running as independent candidates. So in other words, just to, to put everything in perspective, most of what came out of the uprising are individual figures that are decent in their career and their portfolio and therefore presented themselves to society as being incorruptible. I don't know if that's the word. And they presented the problem as it being about merit. And therefore, for them, by, by, by joining the parliament, by making it through, they can do better politics from within, regardless what kind of system they're working in. There's a lot going on there then, in terms of the, the broader defining issues of this election. Um, your, your response just then, Ibrahim, traced it back to the post-Tayef agreement and the, the, the very existential nature of the state, which, which is hugely problematic to, to conceptualise and boil down into electoral slogans and, and to manifestos. But what would you think those those main um, main campaign issues or main electoral issues would be then, Larissa? If you're going to look back, what are the the things that that the, the parties and the individuals were were putting front and center in their in their campaigning? Uh, okay, so 
If we want to speak about the traditional political parties who are part and parcel of the system itself, of the consociational system, they were capitalizing on traditional issues, traditional parties capitalizing on traditional issues. Uh, for instance, the Lebanese forces, they built their campaign around Hezbollah's weapons. Hezbollah built its campaign around the continuation of the party itself. The opposition parties, uh, in the contrary, they were trying to put forward reforms, like the main issue of reforms, whether on the socioeconomic level, whether on the educational level, when it comes to social, uh, also health, health issues. Um, so the main focus of the different parties also deferred throughout the elections. Yet I need to highlight something really important here which is also the role of the independent figures or the independent uh, politicians that were in politics before or that who emerged essentially from the 2019 uprising. They didn't have uh, an electoral program, if we can call it this way. I mean, they were building on their popularity, on their parents' popularity, because many of them also had parents or relatives in politics before. And many of them were capable of securing seats also in the elections. So this shows you that we are still rotating in the circle of the, in the consultational vicious circle, essentially, where you have parties or groups that are being elected based on their electoral programs and based on the issues that they are trying to raise. But at the same time, you have politicians slash figures who are being elected because of the feudal system or because of sectarian practices. Sure. Okay. So is there anything you want to add to that, Ibrahim, in terms of the, 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 the manifesto promises and pledges that are being made? Um, in terms of particularly the opposition groups, because I think Larissa has just articulated the broader structural context and the, the structural factors that are limiting and perhaps even determining the nature of, of that political posturing, if you will. Yeah, I mean, in general, when it comes to the nascent movement and new figures and uh, the, those so-called civil society, there's a, a lot in common in terms of the slogan. In, in a sense, everyone wants to arrive at a civil state, some version of civil state. And therefore, there's a, there's a list of laws, policies that seem to be straightforward and are necessary to arrive at some version of a civil state. And they all agree on these things, and they were presented in their programs, things like civil marriage, um, things like civil laws. So now, of course, in Lebanon, we don't have civil individual laws. Everyone is exclusively tied into their religious courts. Um, so they, they present these as important um, part of their program. Having said that, most of them, and this goes back to the point that Issa is making, either conceded to the dominance of sectarian expectations among voters, or they really tactically went for it when they were campaigning, in the sense that when they were campaigning in their district, they seemed to be speaking the language that the people want to hear, be it bigger questions like Hezbollah's weapons or sovereignty, the same sloganism that emerges from the traditional sectarian parties. And that's why many of us are concerned, first, because they are not consistent in their narrative, 
but secondly, because they are not founded on specific political movements, that these individuals, now that they are co-opted within the political system, it is very likely that many of them will willingly or unwillingly find themselves part of this polarization that is emerging, um, or at least at its peak, because it emerged a while ago, um, between Hezbollah's camp on one side and the anti-Hezbollah camp on the other. That's a little, a little disconcerting and perhaps more depressing, hearing you reflect on that and the sort of the, the lack of scope, either formally or informally, for, for these new opposition movements to articulate an alternative vision, um, which we can get onto in a, in a little bit when we're looking at the, the outcome. But it, it strikes me that, that John Nagel's points about zombie power sharing really do ring true here, and that if you're wanting to, if you're wanting to engage with the system, even if you vehemently disagree with the system, you're having to sort of engage in its reproduction because that's the language of politics in, in the Lebanese context right now. Is that, is that a fair thing to say, do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Structurally speaking. Yeah, structurally. Yeah, of course. And then where do, where do the, the long-standing international actors that have had this vested interest in Lebanon fit in at the, in the sort of, in the, in the lead up to the elections? What about Iran and Saudi Arabia and, and Syria for that matter? Larissa, do you want to, do you want to tackle that one? Yeah, sure. Uh, Actually, just before recording this podcast, I was reading a really interesting piece, and this is maybe the third or the fourth time I read this argument being advocated, which is Hezbollah intentionally uh, not assisting its pro-Syria allies in several districts Mm -hmm. because of regional dynamics which means that Iran is trying to be the sole player to sit in the ta- on the table of negotiations in Lebanon and basically uh, trying to cast pro-Syria figures out and curbing Syria's influence in the country, which is really interesting because essentially after the elections, immediately when the results were out, people started to speak about the defeat of Hezbollah because Hezbollah's uh, allies lost around the 12 seats and Hezbollah, uh, Hezbollah's camp, if we can call it this way, has lost the parliamentary majority. Um, however, even the KSA-backed bloc, which was the March 14 bloc, did not secure a huge victory. Saad Hariri and the Sunni community, despite the fact that Saad Hariri was definitely uh, boycotting the elections, the traditional Sunni figures that are backed by Saudi Arabia, whether for Adesanyura or uh, other figures, uh, weren't able to secure seats, especially in Beirut. So internationally speaking, it's through that Hezbollah, which is essentially backed by Iran, is still as powerful as before, and it does not need a parliamentary majority to still impose its will and its hegemony in the country due to the possession of weapons. But the role of Syria in the future of the country is put under the microscope with many of its essential allies, such as Wa'am Wahab, Salah, Islam, Ali, Thursday, etc., losing their seats, and also KSA losing many of its uh, MPs or political allies who weren't able to secure seats in the country. 
That's really, really yes, useful. If I, if I might to add something Please. here, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. Uh, maybe the margin of maneuver for KSA now is through the Lebanese forces. Because mm-hmm. the Lebanese forces is known to be backed by Saudi Arabia and a pro-March 14 bloc. So that might be interesting to see if Saudi Arabia will be supporting any kind of what they're now calling a sovereign uh, front under which would you have you'll, you'll have the Lebanese forces, some independent MPs, uh, etc. Yeah, that's essentially what I wanted to say. Well, thanks, Larissa. That's it's really interesting, and we can touch on that a little bit more um, towards the end of this. But um, I think it's it's useful to to perhaps look at what actually happened before we go go too much into the future. So, so Ibrahim, you were you were there, you were in Beirut during the, the elections. What what are the, the key headlines from from this round of elections, do you think? Well, the first thing is the system has reproduced its legitimacy, particularly towards the outside actors. And it managed to release the tension um, that was building up within building up within these sectarian communities. It also managed to co-opt the so-called civil society by bringing some of the soft figures into the parliament or allowing them to really make it through. And most interestingly, as as also Larissa was trying to accentuate, some of the key actors within the sectarian system have managed to consolidate their own sectarian representation. In other words. Among the Druze community, Jumblaut was able through a combination of tactics and alliances to really destroy, maybe temporarily, I don't know, but for the time being, really, um, some of the other traditional political families among the Druze community have lost their seats, and therefore Jumblaut now stands as the exclusive representative of the sect. Similarly, for Hezbollah, despite the fact that they lost, or intentionally, I mean, tactically, possibly, as Larissa is suggesting, non-Shia seats, but they managed to consolidate all of these Shia seats, uh, and therefore they managed to win every other Shia seat in the parliament, again, consolidating the representation of this sect. On the other hand, Sunnis and Christian communities were not really able to consolidate this representation. If anything, it was exactly the opposite, particularly because Hadir's boycott on the other and on the other hand, for the Christians, the division between um, Aoun's party and Jaja. Also, all in all, I think, in terms of social and voting behavior, I think there's a level of denial that continues. I don't know if you want us to get into this sort of aspect of of social reaction, but I think one of my first observations in the context of the election is there's a level of denial among um, the society at large to what this election means, in a sense, exaggerating the, the, the kind of outcome that can come out of it, but also there's a level of denial to how deep the crisis is. And in that sense, people voted for merit-based people, hoping that merit-based people can resurrect this <laughs> zombie system, as as John would call it, <laughs> and then maybe society can hyper-consume again without producing anything, which is exactly the kind of political economy that emerged after the war. Larissa, do you want to, to add any of your headlines from this then? I mean, personally, I didn't have the opportunity to go to to Lebanon, but essentially I was trying to follow up what's going on on TV channels. And I have to agree with Ibrahim as well uh, in terms of people voting for technocrats or experts in 
some districts, not in all districts, definitely, because uh, the situation is deepening in Lebanon and the crisis is deepening and people knew that this time their vote might make a difference. This is something I would like to highlight as well, that despite the low uh, voter turnout, but what I personally felt and witnessed is that especially among the young generation, people were keen on voting and expats were waiting in long queues because they wanted to vote for change and they wanted people who have what it takes to try to resolve and fix this ongoing crisis being elected. Yet, the system itself, the corporate consultational system is complicated. And even though now we have at least 14 MPs from those opposition groups uh, in the parliament, uh, I don't know if you if you want us to go there at this at this point, but even with their presence in the parliament, their impact and their capacity of pushing for a change is still debated among a system that was essentially tailored to accommodate the interests of the traditional sectarian parties and ex-warlords. Let, let's go there then, um, as you've as you've raised it. What what scope is there for these technocrats to actually facilitate change, given the results, given what's um, what's happened? So, Larissa, you've you've raised this, so I'll come back to you first. What is your your take on that? I mean, essentially, the question now is whether they will be capable of unifying their efforts and forming one parliamentary bloc, uh, because it seems that. They do not agree on every single aspect, uh, economically and socially speaking. So we are waiting. Everyone in the country is waiting to see whether they will be capable of forming one parliamentary bloc, which will be of around 14 to 15 MPs, and whether they are willing to form alliances with other parties, whether the traditional opposition, such as the Qatari party or not. In that case, there will be a certain weight within the parliament to push for key bills or key laws uh, in order to stop to stop the, econ the economic collapse in the country. But still, now we are facing two major events, which are the election of the speaker and the nomination of the prime minister. And if I want to speak about the first one, which is the speaker, the system was made in a certain way where even if the speaker won't get the majority of the vote, he will be elected anyways because of the national pact, because mm -hmm. of the Taif agreement later on. So uh, the thing that we are capitalizing on is their willingness and their enthusiasm also to push for changes, even if they know that they will be facing so much, so many obstacles and hurdles, just to keep pushing from within to trying to make a breakthrough. So what you're talking about there, Larissa, is the emergence of a of, of a block of MPs that would fall broadly under the rubric of a of an anti or a trans sectarian movement or a non sectarian movement. Ibrahim, let's Oh sorry, please, Larissa, go on. I know just I wanted to say exactly because uh, even, let's say, with the Qatari party lately, they've been adopting this cross-sectarian rhetoric as well. So we are waiting to see whether this block of the newly elected MPs is willing to unify efforts with the, uh, with the Qatari and other independent figures. So we're still waiting to see if something like that will emerge. 
Ibrahim, what's your take on that then? Is that a fair reading from Larissa? And, and if it is, what's your, what's your thinking with regard to this block? Can we talk of them as a, as a block or is it just a collection of independent MPs? Yeah, well, what Larissa has suggested is one of the readings, um, but I strongly disagree with this. I think, um, and I can confirm, if you want, <laughs> that they will not be a block. Um, there's a deep division between them, mm -hmm. particularly on two things. First, on the socioeconomic choices, so in other words, on the distribution of losses. A portion of these, a segment of these MPs, believe that the solution or the, the starting point for the distribution of losses is through, they call it a sovereign fund, uh, sort of a sovereign uh, project in which the assets of the state, I'm, I'm using their words, the assets of the state are pulled into a fund in which it's not privatized, but it is temporarily managed by the private sector for it to be able to produce some kind of profit that would then compensate the depositors who lost their money. So this is one segment of these MPs, and of course this overlaps with the plan presented by the board of directors of the private banks in Lebanon. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you have a, a smaller segment of these MPs um, who have vocally suggested that this is a, a very a, a, a euphemistic way of saying that the state assets, which are technically the society, what is left of the society's wealth, are to be privatized and managed by the banks who are still um, unwilling to announce their bankruptcy. So, so they, they believe that the way forward is not through a sovereign fund, but instead, first, through announcing the bankruptcy of the bank. And then legally, this means that the private wealth of the board of directors of bank is confiscated, which then would allow for the kind of distribution of losses um, that is much more sort of on the left side of things, giving people rights. Um, so um, protecting the vulnerable segments of society at the expense of um, um, the banks that have failed to manage the wealth of society. So that's one key thing that will divide this block. The second thing is in terms of priorities. Mm -hmm. um, some of them will willingly um, find themselves in this polarization and the question of the Speaker of the Parliament and the head of this committee or that, this allocation of seats that is the logic of sectarianism seems to be at the pri a priority for some of these even independent MPs. On the other hand, some of these MPs have a much more radical vision of things and therefore the very logic or question of who is the speaker is a symptom and therefore it's a detail in a much more pressing and urgent crisis, which is the living cost and, and the fiscal currency uh, thinking thing and every other gas, water, electricity now is being paid in dollars. So all of these pressing and urgent matters require answering the key question, how are we distributing the losses? What kind of financial solution and reform are we presenting? And then comes everything else. And that's why this will not be a block. So what you've just teased out there, I think quite nicely, is the return of politics into a political system and maybe more traditional left, right, um, divisions about socioeconomic issues, about political reform, um, and and I guess a type of politics that takes place um, beyond the trappings of the of the sectarian system, but that are equally divisive. Absolutely, but having said that, and this is a very 
intelligence system, the media and the MPs, the traditional MPs, they are able and they are already co-opting the narrative of fair allocation of losses and presenting the sovereign fund as a solution. So what I'm trying to say that even if some of the MPs are trying to bring politics back into the Lebanese political system, the system is able to distort the very meaning behind the question of resources, right? And then turning it into a question of banks, society and the state, as if the state exists outside society and therefore state assets are not really the wealth of society itself. Mm -hmm. So yes, breaking politics back, but also given how little uh, exposure and where the hegemony lies, really there's still the possibility of distorting the meaning of politics in the process of trying to change it. Yeah, of course. Larissa, I, I want to ask if there is a an optimistic reading in response to, to Ibrahim's um, slightly pessimistic take. Is there, a, is there a positive spin that you can take out of this in terms of that block working together despite the, the serious political, economic, social differences that Ibrahim has just articulated? Uh, I mean, despite Ibrahim not agreeing with me on what I've said, we agree on one point, essentially, which is uh, the difficulty of forming one parliamentary bloc by all the MPs. Yes, I am a bit more optimistic than Ibrahim, because <laughs> I know that they are, con they, are, they are meeting nonstop in order to try to bridge the gaps between their ways of thinking about socioeconomic matters. I don't know whether they will be successful in doing so, but in such a system, I believe the only way, at least uh, institutionally speaking, the only way to make a change is forming a sizable bloc in the parliament. Otherwise, uh, there will be just 14 MPs sitting each alone in the parliament, not trying to do anything. If they join efforts in that sense, Despite their differences, if they try to find at least a common ground, even when it comes to the sovereign fund, um, that's the only way. Otherwise, people will have to take to the streets again. We will be in front of another wave of mobilization. And personally, I don't think this is a sustainable way for the country to keep moving onwards. Because today, the country is suffering from a severe economic and financial crisis. Uh, and soon enough, people will be honestly suffering beyond imagination from economic losses. They are already suffering, but if the, if the collapse will keep going on, the suffering will increase. So we need urgent, drastic measures to be taken as soon as possible. Yes, I need also to add something. We are essentially focusing on the new MPs because them securing 14 seats is an achievement by itself but we are forgetting also the high polarization that is happening at the parliament between traditional parties uh, it's true that the hezbollah bloc has lost majority but now both blocks are approximately at the same number of mps or at the same number of seats so there is a huge polarization happening inside the parliament as well and this will affect the election of the speaker and I believe the process of the nomination of the prime minister will take so long as it used to 
to take like in the country. But this time, maybe it will take longer and it will cost the country even more and more uh, time to work on the socioeconomic crisis. I'm trying to remain optimistic by... Uh, hoping that the newly elected MPs will work together to solve their differences. Yet, I don't know to which extent, extent this is feasible. Sure. It strikes me that there's a, a fundamental question at the heart of much of this. And this, this goes back to, to broader questions about change generally in, in politics, about whether you can affect change from within or whether you have to mm-hmm. rip it all up and, and start again. And I know this is, this is a conversation that I've had with, with you, Ibrahim, and it's, it's a conversation mm-hmm. that has dominated discussions amongst opposition groups and protesters. Given the, the, the outcome of these elections and given the severity of the socioeconomic challenges facing people to this day, is there scope for, uh, for change to come from within? Or... Are you envisaging, and this is maybe a bit crystal ball necessary, um, are you envisaging there will be more protests to come, Ibrahim? Okay, two important questions. Let me start with the protest thing. I don't think when we study revolutions, we realize that there's no causality. There's no clear algorithm. I'm thinking of AI because AI is trying to predict the future. (laughs) There's no clear algorithm that explains when and how the streets, I mean, we see unrest or mobilization. So it's not a sort of a, a culmination of like you keep, people keep being disappointed or hurt or whatever, and then you reach to a certain threshold, and then this sort of means that people will show up in the streets. If anything, if we look back into history, when crisis becomes deeper, people are more likely to become either apathetic or unable to mobilize because mobilization becomes itself a privilege. And therefore, and therefore, the outcome of deep crises like these often is sporadic, self-destructive forms of mobilization. So it won't be the kind of the, 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 the euphoria and the romance of the October uprising of 2019. Instead, and of course, we will see some version of unrest, but the unrest will not manifest itself in what we call mobilization, but instead in very sporadic, unpredictable and most of the time destructive or even self-destructive forms of protest. Now, on the bigger point of change, I think in Lebanon, the real power sharing happens outside the state. The allocation of seats become more of a folklore. Mm-hmm. At the level of the, because I'm a Democrat, I'm saying this. At the level of the parliament, the design of the electoral law predetermines most of the results. Or at least it ensures that none of the key players will be decimated. So the current electoral law, which was designed and implemented first in 2018 after four years of delay, ensures that not only the majority of the seats are predetermined, but also, and this is something I saw on the ground when we were counting, um, counting votes, that whatever surprises arise can be reversed or mitigated on the day of the election because of the electoral threshold thing, the two stages of vote counting, a number of seats in districts and state-based seats. So I'm not going to go through these details, but just wanted to flag that the post-war Lebanon the balance of power did not emerge within the system or within the state, but instead through tables and conferences that ironically rarely happen within the country. So any meaningful change first has to concede to this reality. We cannot limit our democratic imaginations to democratic ideals in a country that is clearly undemocratic. And so any meaningful political change has to first start from organizing specific segments of society 
and trying to paralyze the system on the ground, which is normalizing a very deep crisis. The parliament itself is precisely the place in which the system legitimizes itself. Of course, if we get to a strong block, a big block, that is wonderful. But I'm, I'm questioning the very possibility of that, given this assessment of the role of the parliament in the power sharing system. Yeah, I think that's a really important point about the the interplay of of formal and informal politics in Lebanon and the the dominance of of the informal, the zuama, and and indeed external actors as well in reinforcing the 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 maybe informal and formal power sharing processes across Lebanon, which is I guess a challenge for anyone wanting to to engage in the process of change. Larissa, do you have a, a thought to that? Uh, I'm conscious of time, but uh, if you have a, a response to, to those questions that I posed and the observations that Ibrahim has just made, please do share. I mean, the system in Lebanon is paralyzing by nature. Uh, it's a corporate consultational system. It's really old. Uh, the world is moving forward towards more liberal systems. Uh, and I, I agree with Ibrahim that essentially the country is ruled from the outside and all of the conferences that shape the country's political, uh, not future, but basically reality were held outside of the country as well. Uh, yet, here's the question also that I ask myself. If we're not to believe in the utility of being inside of the parliament and pushing for change from within, because this this change that we are witnessing now in the parliament is the tr uh, is the fruit of a change that happened in the society. I mean, those MPs are in the parliament because people voted for them. There is a growing uh, awareness that is being raised in the society, and people are pushing towards this kind of change. But if we are not to build on this presence in the parliament, hopefully to push for a change what is the alternative otherwise the country will plunge into another episode of sectarian violence that i believe no one now uh, is willing to go through so at least from my point of view i'm seeing that either we will go a, through a uh, down a violent path or we need to galvanize and build on the outcome of these elections to push forward despite all the anomalies in the system. And I've mentioned it even before, that the system was essentially tailored for specific parties, for specific figures, to reach the parliament anyways, to never lose their seats. Mm. As is the case, for instance, Gibran Basile and Batroun. I'm just giving one example. But it was tailored, the electoral law and the political system as a whole, to serve the interests of those traditional sectarian parties. But that's the question for me. If we cannot change from within, it's really hard to go through another violent path. It will take time to raise awareness among societal communities and in the society in general, but we are getting there, even if in slow but in steady steps. Sure. Well, thank you for that. There's so much that we've not covered, and there's so much that we should cover but I'm also conscious that we've been speaking for a very long time now. So by way of conclusion, can I ask you both just to, to flag up the thing that you think is really important for anyone interested in these elections and Lebanese politics generally to watch out for moving forward, please? The thing that, that is really important to look out for in the coming weeks and months. Ibrahim, we'll start with you. 
Mm, well, yeah. Uh, first, I want to agree with what Lisa said. So the disagreement between between us is really about the timing. Mm-hmm. So in short, it's too little, too late to think of incremental change or to do any reform from within. These are things that I would have subscribed to in 2008, 2005, but now the system has radically collapsed, and that is the time for radical rethinking of how to govern our society. So my final note is this. I'm worried that Lebanon's crisis, which will soon unfold as a long-term humanitarian tragedy, is either being ignored or normalized by pundits, experts, scholars, and students of Lebanon and the region. So I'm glad that we had this at the center of our conversation. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure if this is textbook academic or policy inertia, or is it implicit orientalist expectation in which systemic chaos and human cost of crisis are seen as a historically um, natural part of this world, of that part of the world. But I'm just questioning here the extent to which many people who claim to be critical and post-colonial, in a sense, having equal value to human beings around the world, Mm -hmm. considered politics as usual for tens of thousands of cancer patients in Lebanon today dying slowly, hundreds of thousands of young, educated, unemployed people pushed out of their country, large destruction of wealth, etc. we've already mentioned, because of the kind of political economy that many consociationalists and scholars chose to normalize. So I'm not comfortable anymore reading full report papers, colorful charts and statistics and reflections on Lebanon that present seemingly acute arguments without even alluding to an unimaginably deep and historically unprecedented crisis. So I invite everyone to be aware of this and to challenge any knowledge of Lebanon's past, present, and future that does not acknowledge seriously the outcome of the post-war order, what the constitutional peace brought to this country and its people for decades to come, the level of misery and irreversible destruction that is the product of our limited imagination of how sex can be governed after a war. This limited imagination is partly liable to the institutional outcomes that gave sex the exclusive right to govern. And in return, they did very little governance and a lot of looting and violence. So, yeah, just be aware of this and not fall into the usual academic inertia. That is hugely powerful and a real wake-up call to a lot of people to not normalize and accept this as politics as usual. Thank you. That's really, really valuable, really important. Larissa, any final words from you? Uh, Briefly speaking, I just want to add to what Brahim said to mention the huge role of the youth. And maybe because I'm working also on mobilization, I'm seeing what they're doing. And despite the fact that the entire world somehow has given up on Lebanon, or as Ibrahim said, it's turning a blind eye to the immense tragedy happening out there. I believe the Lebanese youth are doing more than they can to save their country, whether when they cast their votes in the last elections, whether in the social work they're doing, they're trying their best not to leave the country despite the very dire socioeconomic conditions there. So my last word will be just uh, a huge thank you from the heart to the Lebanese youth doing more than they can, truly, to stay in the country because they believe in this country. They are the ones, they are the true heroes in this story, in Lebanon's story, essentially. Amazing. Thank you so much, Larissa. And a huge thank you to both of you for your time today. It's been a very long conversation, but hugely revealing um, to me, and I'm sure everyone listening will get a great deal out of it, and incredibly important observations from you both.
it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Um, a real, real honour to to hear your your powerful reflections on the the elections, their fallout, and the possible future for Lebanon. So thank you, Ibrahim, and thank you, Larissa. Thank you, Simon. Like, likewise, Simon. Thank you for this conversation.